90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Oh, recovering. Not from COVID, just from allergies. <laughs> right, but when you cough, everybody like backs way up. Exactly. Like I, I wound up doing my first, so classes started this week, in-person classes, um, and I wasn't there for the first couple of days because I thought that during a pandemic, I shouldn't show up sneezing, so I didn't, um, but I did go today, and it's real weird. Basically, like, there's not a lot of people out and about, at least not in our corner of campus. So we'll see tomorrow when I teach across campus <laughs> where all hmm. the people are. Yeah. So, well, here, I'll give it to you this way. At 2 o'clock, the Sarkis parking lot was maybe only a quarter full. <laughs> right, and normally you have to get there by, you know, 6.30 to 7.30 to get parking, period. In the morning, correct, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I don't know. It's interesting. We'll see. Teaching with a mask on is hard, but also it's not that big a deal because I could just, you know, that's only an hour of my day. So I left today thinking, my God, I can't imagine having to like do my entire job with this mask on. So yes, public school teachers are oh. heroes and saints. Oh, they were before. <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, yes. Yes, that is 100% true. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's been a weird new normal week, I guess. All right. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's where we are so far. So, we'll see. <laughs> well, we're, we're chugging along pretty normally here, but next week we're going to go do our first remote job since all of this started. And it's a job that we have been putting on hold because of travel restriction. Right. Um, but we're really getting to the point where a lot of what we do is make custom lab equipment and install it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of to the point with several of these jobs now where we, we have to go put the equipment in. Time to go. Yeah. Uh, we can't sit on the, you know, they, they want the equipment. We can't sit on the equipment any longer. And no yeah. one knows how to install anything themselves, me included. So, <laughs> well, especially that, I mean, it's some of this. It's so custom, like you almost have to have designed it to to do the installation. Was that on your business card? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. That. No. It makes total sense. Um, well. Mm-hmm. We'll see how good your flights are. You know, now that there aren't that many flights, see how your luck stands up. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, it's been a couple surreal weeks then, so we'll see where we go. Also, we're sitting here recording now before Hurricane Laura has made landfall, but it's looking pretty nasty. Uh, that is precisely what I have on my iPad on Radar Scope right now. Mm -hmm. Yep, I started watching it this afternoon with uh, one of the warnings from the Hurricane Center said something like, just expect numerous potentially violent tornadoes throughout Louisiana. <laughs> and there are already two giant tornado warnings out. Yes. Yeah. Numerous potentially violent tornadoes. Like, that's the warning. That's... Ugh. This is going to well, be terrifying. The, the NHC statement also said unsurvivable storm surge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And over 100 to hundreds of miles of coastline. Uh, ah. One of the buoys this morning, and now that it's getting into shallow water close to land... Uh, tomorrow morning, I'll probably make a plot of the inland or the nearland buoy network because it's a lot more dense. Uh, but I was watching the buoys this morning, and it hit one. Uh, it was probably nine or ten central time. Thirty-four point <gasps> something foot wave height. Feet. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So almost a forty-foot wave, and that was oh. early in the day. Now the wind speeds are much higher here late in the day, and it's moving into more shallow water. Oh, that's unbelievable. So so it's probably around then that the warnings also said, I mean, this is going to affect people, you know, 50, 60 miles inland, but if it's strengthened like it has, I mean, can you imagine 100 miles from shore, you're going to have to deal with storm surge flooding? Not just rain flooding. 
That's right. Cr- that's crazy. And, you know, I don't know if, uh, if Tim's a listener, but Tim Marshall uh, is actually down there. He found a nice uh, fifth, uh, five-floor parking garage with enclosed stairwells in Lake Charles. Oh my gosh! Uh, to do some storm tracking, but this would be a pretty terrifying one to uh, yeah to be tracking. Yeah, especially right there. Um, yeah, this is unbelievable. So that's a scary thing. Um, I think everyone, well, lots of people are going to be up late tonight watching to see what happens there. So I will say it's harder now. You know, we we've been a cord cutter for years. We don't have traditional cable or satellite TV. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. I I don't have anything to watch live coverage on. Uh, I know. So that was interesting. I was thinking about that too um, because I'm in the same boat. I guess I'll just watch the same. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. There is like ABC World News on the Roku and the last big hurricane couple years ago i don't remember exactly which one it was they did pretty good stuff so it was a good like 25 to 40 minutes that didn't repeat itself so you can get it on there okay well i mean or you can just pop some of your old vhs tapes in of landfall of hurricanes of yesteryear <laughs> i don't know who you're talking about john <laughs> <laughs> just because i've been to numerous nerd parties with the weather channel on in the background from a vhs tape <laughs> Well, I think it was, uh, I can't remember the storm name right now. It was an A. Uh, maybe it's Alex? 28 years ago today, it made landfall almost in the same spot. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I'll go through the archives and see if I've got that one. Yeah. <laughs> we mostly listened to the local on the 8s news, or uh, background music. You know, it was like this great elevator sort of Oh, yeah, I can still hear it. Uh, yeah, I know you can. Okay, so what are we talking about <laughs> There's also a great post I found about somebody restoring. They got one of the boxes that generated that and <gasps> basically reverse engineered it. We're making their own oh. local on the eights. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that makes me super happy. <laughs> I'm gonna look that up. Um, <laughs> so it was all custom fonts and glyphs and every, like it was all oh custom by the other channel. Yeah. Oh, that's super cool. <laughs> so that's funny because today in class. Um, we were talking about my, uh, co-instructor, Dr. Sorgan, was saying something about the movie L.A. Volcano, and I said, excuse me, it was just called Volcano, the one with Tommy Lee Jones? Right, yeah, and one of the best bad geology you. movies of all time. Thank you! So she was like, that movie was stupid, unlike Dante's Peak, which was quite good. I hated Dante's Peak. I loved Volcano. <laughs> Oh, Volcano, I mean, oh. it It in the core are probably my favorite two See? geology movies, and it's number one. Thank you. Thank you, John. This is why we do this. Dante's she, Peak is four or five on that list, It's way least. down. Like, Dante's Maybe Peak more. is below... Uh, Tremors. The, oh, no, Tremors is, like, number two for me. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Dante's Peak is definitely below Tremors. It's Oh, no, Dante's Peak is, like, at the... It's below the day after tomorrow for me. Yeah. I will agree with that. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so that was really funny. And one of the girls in our class, who's actually in my research group, she said, um, Dante's Peak was why I became a geologist. <laughs> and I just like looked at her and said, well, Twister is why I became a meteorologist. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, not going to laugh at that one, are you? <laughs> no. I mean, it's not well, I just laugh because true. you say Twister's why I became a meteorologist as you stand there as a geology faculty member. Uh, <laughs> well, I got my meteorology degree. There we go. <laughs> um, you know, I can be a meteorologist when I have to. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was really funny. Oh, new tornado warning issued. Huge oh polygon, like covering probably two counties. Those are severe <laughs> thunderstorm warning sized. Oh my gosh. There are there parishes there, but yes, that is the biggest tornado warning that's ever been warned. Um, so, welcome to the uh, geology movie, beer, and live weather stream yes, of Hurricane Laura. Exactly. Uh, I think our ADD has caught up to us um, for this episode. <laughs> um, yeah, it, class today is what gave me the idea of what we should talk about too, um, because we were talking about. We talked about that stuff, and I thought it was funny. And then we also started talking about Antarctica in 
this class, our Earth's Past Climate class, has a bunch of very disparate majors. So we had we actually have a bunch of meteorology majors, which is real scary because, as you just pointed out to me, I'm not a meteorologist, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm teaching this graduate level meteorology class. <laughs> um, but we have a bunch of there was we had a psychology major, and um, a couple of other majors that we don't usually have. So I thought it was funny. We're sitting there talking about plate tectonics and all this stuff. We're talking about Antarctica. And I thought we, you and I, talk about Antarctica quite a lot because you do a lot of work for researchers there. And I'm just obsessed with it in general. But the general public, you know, if you're going to make a let's go to Antarctica thing, like why would anyone go to Antarctica? And I thought we'd sort of make a, like a scientific travel brochure of Antarctica today for people. <laughs> Well, and, you know, I was talking to my wife about this, and I said, well, I don't know how fascinating this is going to be. And she's like, no, you you have to realize, before I met you, I never even thought about people going to Antarctica, much less knew any. And now we go to picnics where we're the only people at the picnic that haven't been there. See? Exactly. <laughs> uh, and we're not talking small gatherings either, you know? I mean, it's just, it's something that uh, we... I work, like you said, a lot with the people that go there and have become relatively comfortable saying, you know, okay, well, yeah, we got to get this crate shipped to McMurdo and oh, when's that coming back? And mm-hmm. yeah, it's become rather routine for us. Mm-hmm. And we should probably, you know, interview people who have been there as opposed to us just talking about it. But we can speak Which, something. We have a couple. Oh, we, we have, yes. Um, but just, I, I'm super obsessed and really want to go, but it's quite the ordeal to get there. Um, <laughs> and... I think we can speak fairly, fairly, I don't know, with any kind of degree of certainty about what some of the scientific goals are there. Because, yeah, I mean, just like you're saying, Lindy said, like, what, why would you even go, you know? Um, a long time ago in one of our classes, we have a, um, a debate about, like, the whole undergraduate class has debates and they're sent into different teams and one of the teams was about climate change. And so this team got stuck with, like, basically the pros of climate change. <laughs> and one of the things that they did was they made a travel poster for Antarctica. And they'd, like, taken the, all the ice off, right? And said, like, hey, see this location. And, you know, I'd put, like, trees in and all this stuff. <laughs> and I always thought that was super good. Like, no, I mean, obviously climate change is terrible and what's happening in the Arctic is super fast and awful, but it was an interesting take on it. And it, it is like maybe in the future, that's what people, that's where people will be going. I don't know. Yeah. So in my opinion, there are lots of reasons to go to Antarctica other than it's really fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Just the, because. <laughs> the, the poles of the earth, both poles really are scientific significantly all right they're significant because you can do experiments there that you can't do anywhere else Mm -hmm. Uh, i mean first of all there's interesting geology and it's where we can learn a lot about earth's past climate but also where else are you going to go that has a magnetic dip of like 90 yeah we have to have a special compass (laughs) right or where are you going to go where you can use a kilometer on a side cube of ice as a detector for neutrinos. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, where are you going to go? It's isolated. There is no electrical noise because there's no electrical. Uh. You know? <laughs> where can you go that's that isolated? There are very, very few places. Uh, in addition to, if you're into upper atmosphere electricity and all that, of course, you've got uh, the aurora phenomenon, mm-hmm. all that fun stuff as well. Yeah, exactly. There's like, I mean, I don't know. There's probably five shows worth of atmospheric phenomenon that we could do just talking about the poles. So, and you can get, uh, I don't remember what it was exactly, but the highest temperature gradient I recorded on earth, I believe was Antarctica. Really? Uh, because it was a very, very still overwinter. And I want to say it was like 30 something degrees from head to toe temperature Mm -hmm. gradient because the air stratified that much. Wow. That's so weird. 
I can't even imagine that. Sorry, I'm just trying to sit here imagining that. Right, like ice at your feet and yeah, semi comfortable at your head. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so That's you get weird. all kinds of interesting phenomena, um, but there are also advantages to having just a large, massive blank canvases with nothing on them. Okay, so you can't exactly do geology because all the geology is covered by ice. Not all of it, but most of it, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. But there are some advantages to having that giant blank canvas to look for things on. Right. And so that's obviously my favorite thing to do in Antarctica, if I'd been, was this is where we go to collect meteorites. Yeah. If you see a chunk of dark rock, it's very easy to spot on a sheet of white <laughs> snow and ice. Yeah, exactly. And I mean... So not all meteorites are these dark iron meteorites, right? Um, some of them just look exactly like rocks we'd have here on Earth. And so probably most of those are never really found if they hit anywhere else. But if they've hit on this ice, you know that, oh, well, this chunk of rock or, you know, chondrite meteorite. Well, chondrite is probably a meteorite and not you know, a piece of that limestone over there. Um, and also right, they, where else would it come from? <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. So, um, and also it acts to, because as we've talked about numerous times, when we've talked about glaciers, um, the ice on Antarctica flows, right? It's a big continental ice sheet flows like syrup on top of a stack of pancakes. And it will actually concentrate these meteorites into little ravines and stuff, which I think would be the most unbelievable thing to just like turn a corner and like walk into this huge ravine of meteorites. Right. I I also think it's interesting that you refer to ice flowing as syrup on the stack of pancakes because every other glaciologist I've talked to has talked about the ice as imagine putting pancake mix on a griddle. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) okay, fine. I go too far. I mean, that makes more sense, though, too, because the pancakes probably stick to the griddle and it moves a little bit more like that than than syrup. Mine's just at a different time scale, that's all. There you go. <laughs> uh, so looking for meteorites is a big thing that folks do. And, you know, we, we do have sort of more developed camps and bases like McMurdo Station that the U.S. operates. Other countries operate bases as well. Yeah, because no one owns Antarctica, right? Right, and the time zone convention down there is very strange. That's a whole show. Oh, really? Oh, uh, hmm, interesting. Okay. I mean, what, what, what people operate on and what is actually zoned as is a very interesting point. But hmm. anyway, so we have these bases that you go to as a researcher, and you sort of home base out of there. But oftentimes, at least with my customers, they go into the deep field where they get flown out on these little planes like a twin otter and dropped off and you know you've got a sat phone if there's an emergency we'll be back in two weeks good luck oh oh my gosh i was on a twin otter uh doing an overflight of um a lot of the uh bahamas and i can't imagine being on that plane in the arctic (laughs) well our plane didn't have a door or any windows (laughs) So right. I, I imagine theirs might. I don't know. That's terrifying. <laughs> hmm. Anyway. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, and you're really stuck in there with uh, all your equipment and the people that are going to be out there with you. Uh, I have heard so many not safe for work stories about how crazy Antarctica is. <laughs> Right. <laughs> like, I think it, like, leads a lot of people to, like, drinking a lot and all that jazz, and that becomes a big theme down there. But that's probably another show as well. Um, <laughs> and I think it can drive you a little bit crazy, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. one of my favorite stories that I've heard, and I I don't remember don't remember all of the names involved, so I'm going to just not use any of them. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but was... Uh, from an Antarctic deployment many, many years ago, uh, where you would they would drop you off and you had to, I believe you had to set up a tent and get a fire going and test your radio before the plane would leave. 
Okay, yeah. Oh, and you had to know where you were on, on a map. Uh, so they, uh, the plane lands, everybody gets off. The navigator comes running out of the plane. Well, the navigator is normally just staying in the plane. Uh, so this navigator was not wearing winter gear. <laughs> and in the summer, it's, it's cold. It's not, it's not like bundle up in crazy expedition gear, but it's cold. Right. Yeah. Um, so, navigator comes running out of the plane in shorts. That tells you how long ago this was, because there wasn't all the regulation around it there is now. <laughs> uh, hands them a slip of paper and says, "There's two numbers on here. One of them's latitude. One of them's longitude." And runs back into the plane. <laughs> and they've got their fire in their tent and everything, and the plane takes off. And they look at the paper, and they're both numbers like you know, eighty-eight <laughs> point something. <laughs> And uh, so they actually had to do the the star triangulation method to figure out where they were. <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> that's amazing! Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine. Yeah, being in a place where, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, because your latitude, you know, is going to be minus very high, mm-hmm. uh, and your longitude could really be just about anything. Anything. Just anything. Uh, map projections are weird. Oh, man. Um, so this just reminded me, and I meant to say this at the beginning of the show, but you'd be really proud. My son, we were talking right before the show. He's in sixth grade. And he was like, you know, I really like geography. And he was like, we were looking at all these pictures of, like, different ways that people show the earth. You know, Mom, they're called projections. And I said, oh, oh, son, <laughs> let me Google waterman butterfly for you. <laughs> And so we spent a good 10 minutes with a waterman butterfly, but he drew the line at listening to our map projection shows. So. Yeah, good call. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was pretty great. Um, yeah, I can't imagine. And it's like, I wonder how many people in general could even tell you what the shape of Antarctica is just because of the type of map projections that are normally used in school. Well, and you want to know a funny thing. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> So, you know how people from Michigan always do that thing where they hold their hand up? <laughs> yes. So, Antarctic Unless... glaciologists have the same thing. Oh, my gosh. Because you can see the shape of Antarctica right now where you hold your thumb out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, we do the same thing and point on our palms to where you go. Oh, that's hilarious. Yep. I had no idea, but that makes me really happy. <laughs> um, Except we're a lot less uh, annoying about it than people that are talking about their time on the UP. Ooh, ew! Sorry, youpers. You can send that hate mail too. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> one of our um, favorite joint, or one of our joint favorite people in our department, has a uh, sticker on his um, computer that is the UP, and it's just a, it's just that sticker, the outline of the UP, and then it says yours after that. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I love that. That's the best sticker ever. <laughs> um, anyway, okay. Where were we at? So, yeah. So, <laughs> we've got this odd-shaped continent where mm-hmm. you've got to do weird things, like weight your compass needle because the magnetic <gasps> dip is so high. Unbelievable. Uh, and it makes the compass needle hit the glass. Mm-hmm. But, so, we go look for meteorites. We also do a lot of geophysics. I mean... A lot of geophysics. So much geophysics. Um, is that because, well, I mean, we have to do geophysics to understand what the shape of the actual land is in Antarctica. Because as you said, there's very few spots where you're actually, you know, standing on rock. Yeah, so you got to go through the ice with generally ground-penetrating radar. Mm-hmm. Our favorite. Uh, though there's a lot of seismic as well. Mm-hmm. And we actually manufacture, you know, quick plug, uh, Lima <laughs> Geophysical manufactures the uh, leading uh, active source seismic receiver for polar work. That's awesome. <laughs> because it's really hard, you know, in, in Oklahoma or anywhere like that, you take your little seismic sensor and you put a spike on the bottom, you stick it in the dirt and everything works great. Mm-hmm. Uh, snow and ice has terrible coupling. You know, it's like trying to, you know, put your ear down on a piece of steel rail and you can hear a train coming from a long way away. 
Mm-hmm. Put your ear down on sand, and you can probably <laughs> hardly hear the train right beside you because uh, of the coupling. Uh, yep. And so we make a, a sensor called a georod to mitigate that. Oh, there you go. Uh, and they that. go to Antarctica, so we actually just sent uh, 130 to Antarctica this year. And, I mean, there's a... How big is your window of time to get things shipped into Antarctica? <laughs> Alarmingly small. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> uh, generally, you know, so the, the way the funding cycle works for a lot of Antarctic work, the orders, we sort of get a heads up of we think we're going to be placing an order in June, generally. <laughs> mm-hmm. Orders come in July or August. And last year, the drop dead shipping deadline of it will absolutely not make it was October 10th. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and that moves up every year, it seems like, mm-hmm. to be sooner. So this year, we actually got our process down a little bit more. We warned our suppliers that, you know, we're going to be making a big order of thing X, Y, and Z. Uh, so be ready. <laughs> and we were able to get them turned out a lot faster. But we also had you know, two or three people working assembly. Right, yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a short time, and it's a complicated process to get equipment there. Oh, I can't even imagine. Like, I think of what a pain it is to, like, ship a drill to um, the UK. But that's probably nothing <laughs> compared so, to what you're dealing with. <laughs> last year, we used a local carrier, local less-than-truckload carrier, uh, to get it to a distribution center where it got on an aircraft where it went to Dubai and set for a while. And then got on another international flight and went to New Zealand, where it got trucked to a U.S. Air Force base, where it got put on a C-47 and flown to Antarctica, where it was then, I think it was uh, snowmobiled or snowcatted or something over to the, the customer's location. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's so trying to put hard. all of that routing instruction on a pallet packer <laughs> slip <laughs> Not real fun. Uh, turn right at the fourth penguin. Um, <laughs> that's unbelievable. That's so, it, yeah, that's so far beyond like the things that people think about. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super crazy. Um, so lots of geophysics. There's lots of, I mean, why Antarctica? Why? Well, it's a pretty important indicator of Earth's past climate and future climate. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think pretty much everybody I work with is interested in that aspect of it. Yes. Yeah, that's true. What is the seismic going to tell us about climate? Yeah, so knowing the shape of the rock under the ice allows us to model and know how the ice flows which is important because you don't really think about ice being stable or unstable necessarily. Mm-hmm. But where the ice is flowing off the land, out onto the ocean on the ice shelf, the topography of the land under the ice actually determines. So say you warm the water and you start melting ice. Some topography configurations, as you melt a little ice, it becomes harder to melt more. Some topography configurations, once you melt a little bit of ice, you can cool the ocean back down and then the rest of it's going to (laughs) go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's because it's a combination of how the ice flows, the shape of the land, influencing how the ice flows, the access of water to the bottom of the ice, and so on, uh, makes huge differences in how it behaves. So you can hit a tipping point and then after that reduce your carbon emissions all you want, and it doesn't matter. You still are going to melt most of the ice cap. Mm-hmm. you're going to drastically change the albedo, which is going to have other feedbacks in terms of climate. Lots and, and lots of feedbacks there. <laughs> right. And it also, you know, tells us more about if we do cores through the ice, which we've done many of now, well, many in terms of what you would have expected, maybe. Right, yeah. Uh, tell us more about the history of that ice that we're looking at. It's so weird to think about probably not the super near future, or I mean, super far future, that, you know, we're frantically trying to figure out what this earth, what that landscape looks like. 
Whereas I don't know how many years it's going to be where people are like, yeah, Antarctica. Yeah, we've got pictures of it. It's no big deal, you know, to figure that out. Right. Um, and then to think about how. So when we core down and we can get actual bubbles, which are actual measures of atmospheric chemistry from, you know, a long time ago, we're working on a million years almost. Um, and so that's a. Uh, that's a really big deal that's going to be gone. Yeah. And, you know, that would be another interesting set of folks to have on the show. And quite a few that have worked with drilling those ice cores and retrieving them. And we're actually working on a machine right now uh, for them that measures the orientation of the crystals in those cores to learn oh. about the flow history of the ice. Oh, that's really cool. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah. And also... The state of the earth now where we have ice at both poles is by far unique in geologic time. So oh, absolutely. It's not the norm. <laughs> not even close to the norm, right? Like, we think it's the norm because that's where we grew up as humans. Um, but it's not even close, just like you said. So how can you tell when there was ice on earth? Well, you need to look at places where there's ice now. And these, you know deserts because that's what antarctica is because icy places are dry places um yeah those aren't going to be around to study so it's sort of uniformitarian uniformitarianism you know we need to see what those places look like so we can figure out what effects that has on the rock record and in turn you know the climate too right so there's a lot of important things that's why we're doing some of these massive there's a field campaign called Croesus, um, where you fly radars on airplanes over vast sections of the continent uh, to try to get maps and also to inform ground survey design of where you need to go shoot seismic or where you need to go do ground-based radar. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also some exciting work, and I, I swear this isn't a commercial, but uh, <laughs> there's been some exciting work or uh, tilt, trying to understand how tidal stresses can influence glacial pumping of water. That's weird. Uh, and a lot of that has only been modeled until a couple of seasons ago. Uh, we designed, I'm not going to say the most precise tilt meters that are out there because I know of some that operate in labs that are more precise. Uh, I'm going to say the most precise field deployable tilt meter. Mm, okay. That's not mm -hmm. a borehole. Gotcha. Uh, so these, you dig a little hole in the ice, uh, you stick a metal plate in it, and then you bury this instrument. And it was actually able to resolve tilt so tiny, so well, that many, many, many miles, like very far from the coast, were actually able to measure deflection of the ice sheet due to tide out on the ice shelf. <sighs> And from that, start backing out properties of the bed and the ice and so on. Oh, that is super cool. That's really cool. It's been tried with other tilt meters, but it just worked with ours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can get yours for only $9.99. And <laughs> oh, if only. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> they're a wee bit more expensive than that, but they're still... Uh, they're no more expensive than the other surface-based tilt meters. I'll put it that way. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. But they're not the price of a small car. They're the price of a used car. <laughs> I didn't say nine ninety nine in a specific currency. You never know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, that's super cool. Um, I know there's also a lot of geochemical work that goes on in Antarctica because who doesn't want to go see... That creepy blood springs, you know? Yeah. Oh. And we've mentioned this before. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so you should look that up if you <laughs> have never seen that. And, I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, how would life survive Snowball Earth, right? If Snowball Earth happened, how would life survive? Where are you going to go to find that out? You're going to go to Antarctica, right? There's all kinds of, who knows what kind of, weird creepy things are living in that ice <laughs> oh yeah and also it's you know if you want to study 
erosional effects and that kind of thing. It's a pretty well-controlled environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also pretty well-instrumented now <laughs> in some <laughs> places. <laughs> Lehman Geophysical owns Antarctica. <laughs> no, I mean, just in terms of like, you know, right. you, you would think, oh, well, we, we need meteorological data for that. There's a shocking number of MET stations. That's pretty funny. It's probably better covered than some parts of the U.S. Uh, at least parts of it, yeah. I yeah. Mean, there is still a lot. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed uh, talking to one of the teams that took some of our instruments out was where we landed and set up camp, as far as we know, no one has ever been. Oh, God, that's so weird. That is a very shocking, like, you know, we got pictures of them deploying these instruments. It's like, nobody's ever been there on Earth before. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that is, that's a strange thing to be, I can't imagine standing there and feeling that, you know? Right. Uh, so, you've got that aspect of it, and you've got a lot of just exploration, too, because it's a huge continent. Mm-hmm. We don't know a lot about many places. We just use satellite imagery to discover things like melt lakes and those sort of things during the spring. Right. Yep. Exactly. Uh, a lot of weird things can happen. Like you can have a lake that suddenly drains in <laughs> hours mm-hmm. down under the ice sheet. Uh, you can have entire huge sheets of ice jacked up by hydraulic processes mm-hmm. and floating. Like, uh, and then one of my favorite I first heard this in meteorology and then became more familiar with it in geology and glaciology classes. Uh, the effect of regulation. Oh, yeah. Um, we don't talk about that very much. Yeah, so you can get this fun process where if you've got ice that's in hard contact with a bumpy bed, mm-hmm. uh, there's a theory behind the Weirtman tombstone theory where you assume sort of uh, Lego bricks. <laughs> On the uh-huh. surface, um, you know, you model it as like one centimeter cube, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ice is flowing towards them. The ice, it's obviously pushing hard. You're at high pressure on one side of it. Mm-hmm. That changes the melting point of the ice. Becomes liquid. The water squirts around to the other side where there's a low pressure and then instantly becomes a solid again. Mm-hmm. So the ice is moving over these bumps as the ice is freezing on the backside, the low pressure side, freezing releases heat, which then transfers, conducts thermally through that little tombstone back to the other side to heat it more, to melt more ice. Um, so there's all these fun flow dynamics that happen that we get to investigate and model and things you never would have thought about happening where that's ice really touches cool. rock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's really... I, I remember first, like realizing how much pressure is involved in a glacier and it always like blows my mind to think of like pressure and temperature changes that change the melting points of stuff oh yeah yeah Uh, it's like oh weird stuff can start to happen now well in fact the installation that we're going to be going to do next week is a lab that just studies pressure and temperature effects on ice rheology oh my goodness Okay. Uh, so we're, we're talking like liquid nitrogen temperature. Uh, you know, think simulating uh, Jovian moon right. ice dynamics mm-hmm. is what they do. Oh, that's awesome. Well, that sounds fun. This is the worst part of this podcast is I'm like, man, what if I did that as a job? Because <laughs> <laughs> um, it always sounds so much cooler than... Paleo mag. Um, there's actually a lot of paleo mag that goes on in Antarctica as well. So I've been trying to figure out a way to uh, horn in on that. Oh, I've told a couple of our customers that I'm stopping writing manuals, so they have to take me. Oh, <laughs> I love that. That's a that is an excellent idea. Um, yes. So our um, the the ins- the professor that I teach with uh, went down there because she has a big grant about paleoclimate and they're trying to find like extreme environments and compare like the geochemical processes that are going on there and see if that translates into anything that's been like captured in the rock record 
And so they got to go. Um, this was several years ago. And I remember one of the days that she was down there, it was colder in Oklahoma than it was down there. And so that was a big deal. Like, it made the front page of, like, the Norman newspaper <laughs> and everything. So that was pretty funny. And again, another project where I got to do all the, yep. or not all, but a lot of the dirty lab work on the samples that came back. You sure did. <laughs> Centrifuging things out. and. <laughs> oh, yep. Uh, that's what I was trying to, you know, break in easy to that so I wouldn't bring up all your PTSD. <laughs> yep. Oh, uh, yeah. She brought us all back Ventifax. That was nice. <laughs> Though I will say, uh, I'm not going to quite say that's the start of Lehman Geophysical because it wasn't uh, exactly. But I do remember being like, uh, the centrifuge timer doesn't work. Like, and, you know, okay, they don't have money to fix it or whatever. So I'm just going to sit here and take it apart and figure out how to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> that's and we, we have done some work on, on that project as our company now recently. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there you go. See, it's crazy. We're just we're all a bunch of inbred scientists for sure, right? <laughs> right, and you know the community of people that goes to Antarctica is relatively tight knit, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. And generally know each other. I think this is really funny to think about, like how many things you've touched that have been to Antarctica. <laughs> it's very weird. <laughs> That's really unfair. <laughs> Like, as badly as I want to go, that's truly unfair. <laughs> hmm. And especially when they come back. And let me tell you, the people that go to the field in Antarctica, I, I, I dearly love all of them. They're so hard on equipment. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, can you imagine? Come on now. It's Every so time hard. I'm like, okay, we got this design really locked down. At least, you know, something comes back in some various form of mangled that we never imagined. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I mean, you but haven't we, had any like animal related manglings though, so there's that. <laughs> there's that. We don't have the problem with cows, you know, chewing on wires. Exactly. Uh, we have the problem of, oh, it snowed a lot more than we thought and we never found it again. Or <laughs> <laughs> it fell into this crack and we never found it again. Yeah, see, that's, <laughs> I've heard some really great stories about people like just losing it down there. And like, um, this was a this is a third hand story, but it's pretty funny about guy just finally losing it. And he just decided to send the little snowmobile they were on. It was kept crappy, kept breaking down. And he got so mad at it that he just tied it on, like tied the tied the gas down and just sent it on its way and it fell down a crevasse and then he realized all of his notes his field notes were in the oh no in the back on the back <laughs> yeah <laughs> i can't yeah. <even> imagine <laughs> and you know we've had some really some really interesting deployment challenges uh because you wouldn't really think about it, but you've got a lot of incoming solar radiation in the summer. Mm -hmm. And so like black pelican cases, we had some instruments in those and they actually melted the ice around them. Oh yeah. I could totally see that. Down into it a little bit. And then when they went to recover the instruments were chipping with ice axes uh -huh. to try to get these out of a solid block of ice that they were now part of. Uh -huh. Oh yeah. Yep. I could see that, which is a great lesson in, albedo change and why once we get rid of the ice how ridiculously hot everything's going to be <laughs> yeah so there's some interesting challenges there there's one of the things that i think we've got very good at because we've spent a long time working with customers that go to the antarctic is we know what they want in terms of an instrument interface oh okay so they need to be able to be wearing gloves to punch it or what? Yeah. No touch screens, <laughs> no phone apps, big, <laughs> huge, round, Buttons. clicky knobs. <laughs> That's really funny. So make this look like a toddler's toy. And uh, yeah. Exactly. And like there's this thing called a chicken head knob. Uh, <laughs> if you envision an old radio, it's one that's kind of like it's around in the center and it's got a point on it. 
Right. Yeah. If you Google it, you'll find a good picture. Like yeah. that is what you want. It clearly shows you from a distance what the setting is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. You can do it with knobs and also lights. Like, oh. if it's logging, there should be a happy blinking green light. That's funny. Yeah, and if it's not sense. logging, there needs to be something that you can't miss because field brain is a thing. <laughs> yeah, and probably when, yeah, when you're dealing with those kind of just personal issues of trying to stay alive. <laughs> right. Well, also, you know, okay, you've been working for 12 hours, and this is the sixth instrument you've deployed. Are you really going to remember that you need to turn this switch to this position before this one? Mm-hmm, right, like, yeah. No, and you it's, need to make this easy. Yeah, it's never dark, and you only have so much time there, so, mm-hmm. Right, and everything works the first time, every time. Always. <laughs> we also had some pretty good things come back, uh, this last year, I had to send a very large string of program commands over satellite phone text message <laughs> to some folks in the field to do an in-field update on something. Oh, my gosh. Um, which was very weird, sitting in my my easy chair in the living room, texting commands to somebody in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's see. We've had uh, <laughs> a missing plug that didn't make it down resulted in uh, paper clips and duct tape being used to connect something to a generator once. That could be anywhere. That's not just, <laughs> that's just. Yeah, but normally you just drive to Lowe's and pick up the plug. Okay, that's true. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, this is great. I knew you'd have great Antarctica stories. <laughs> yeah. But before we go on too long, a uh, quick lore update. Looks like we just had an eyewall replacement cycle. Uh, wow. I... Yes. <laughs> I had just looked at that. <laughs> <laughs> like, just now when you said that. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, unbelievable. And there's some really interesting... I don't... Off the top of my head, I can't figure out exactly what the reason is. But on the west side of the eye, there are some very interesting cuspy features in the reflectivity. Yes. Yeah. Yes, there are. This is so strange. Hmm. But... That probably means that it's mm -hmm. time for us to move on to everybody's <laughs> favorite segment of the show. On Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> and Shannon found the perfect paper. Oh, man. I knew that dad joke was coming. <laughs> yep. Uh, um, this paper's amazing. Uh, not the cat's meow. The impact of posing with cats on female perceptions of male dateability by Kogan and Volsh. Of which I will say I was shocked at what their hypothesis was. Because it is, it is the opposite of what my hypothesis would have been. <laughs> well, okay. So um, this is from Colorado State and then Boise State too. And the departments in the vet school and also Department of Anthropology. And so these researchers suggested that... You know, everyone loves animals, right? So obviously, if guys are pictured with animals on their dating profiles, then they're probably going to get more attention. And that's but, been shown in other studies. Correct. And so specifically, let's look at what men holding kitty cats does to women's perceptions of them. <laughs> and to no one's surprise... <laughs> Oh, man, this is super funny. <laughs> so they used, uh, one of my favorite parts of this was they used Amazon Mechanical Turk. Yes, I was going to, I have a big, obviously, a big digital sticky note to ask you about this because I thought this was really cool. So have you heard of Mechanical Turk or have we talked about it before? No, we haven't. And that's why I have this big sticky note about it because I thought that's how, yes. So Tell you put it. a task out there. It could be anything. And there are many tools to help you build this task. Like, you know, you can enter text into a box or draw with the mouse in a box or all kinds of stuff. Uh, whatever you can imagine, you can pretty much do or code with it. Um, and you put it out there and you say, this is the demographic that I'm looking for. 
and Amazon farms it out to a bunch of people. This is so crazy. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of, especially pre-AI getting, I'm not going to say good because it's not good yet, but pre-AI yeah. getting accepted. Um, or if you've got a product or app idea or something that you want to beta test, some of them have literally launched with just Amazon Mechanical Turk people. So, you know, you press a button in your app, like, tell me the, the best sushi restaurant, da 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 And it would actually just forward it to a real person who would go look this stuff up and send it back to you. This is crazy. Uh, so it is on-demand people to do tasks, and they get paid by the task. Generally, not much. Um, most of the tasks also don't take much time. Mm-hmm. So in this web or in this task, you know, you view two pictures of a guy and you fill out, it was probably 12 to 15 questions or so mm-hmm. on each and you get paid 50 cents. Which is great. I mean, what this probably took, you know, 10 minutes at the most. Oh, less than that. Yeah. Uh, and I, I've seen people use Mechanical Turk to build training data sets for AI before. Uh, like in one talk, you know, somebody said, draw a picture of a sheep. Mm-hmm. And they had you know, 3,000 sheep that oh. were drawn by people with their mouse. Okay. And it cost them dollars <laughs> to okay. get that. Which is hilarious because, yeah, I mean, you couldn't get college students to do that. So, <laughs> Right. Or, you know, if you had a bunch of images that you wanted to classify, um, you could just say, you know, I will pay you a nickel per image to go through and tell me if there's an airplane in this photo. Mm-hmm. And somebody's going to sit there and all day click that one nickel, 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 oh, as they click. Oh my gosh. And you get very inexpensive labor. Yeah, but I think a lot of those people don't know what sidewalks look like just based on my robotic CAPTCHA things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the cap- CAPTCHA is an interesting concept. But... Um, so can you sign up you can sign up to be a person on here. Oh, yeah. You, you can be a cog in the Mechanical Turk wheel. This is amazing. I think I might, yeah. I see the sign in as a requester, sign in as a worker. Yeah. After this favor, I might do this. Like, what a great use of your downtime, right? This is probably better than scrolling Instagram. Probably. Probably uh, not, but. So. <laughs> yeah, so they case, did this. It was neat. <laughs> Yeah, they did this, and they got a massive response compared to what you would expect. Yes. And they're able to filter out. You know, they say, we only want to show this to female, uh, female identifying people that are between ages of X and X. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it just gets rid of all the rest. It's great. Yeah. Absolutely great. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought some of the things they asked were very interesting, just based on, um, but this was a real thing. Like, the things they asked were based on these inventories, and this is obviously where the anthropologist comes in, right, um, that assigned, like, perceived personalities, the big five inventory, which I'd never heard of, and then perceived masculinity or femininity inventory. So they asked ten things about this perceived personality, which was thing, uh, which were things like, are you, is reserved, looks lazy, is outgoing, um is neurotic essentially and it's a quantified <laughs> first impression yes yeah this is super interesting and then then the one that was the perceived masculinity or femininity was stuff like you know dominant acts as a leader affectionate sympathetic warm that was so interesting to me so those things already existed but that's what they used um and the part that i loved about this is they asked the participants, whether they identified as a dog person, a cat person, both or neither. Right. And there was a very strong correlation to the results. Well, and they also asked, you know, both in terms of like, what do you think? They thought there might be a difference. Is this a long term <gasps> uh, mm-hmm. or just a short term hookup kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah. And there actually wasn't much of a difference. No, um, which I thought was really funny because then they say that, well, even people, and I don't, I don't know if this was my, I don't know if they said especially women or if that's just me thinking that, um, even if you're just looking for a hookup, you still analyze people based on like long-term compatibility, no matter what. 
Well, and they also said that that long-term compatibility aspect seemed to be more important to people over 30. Mm-hmm. I was shocked that that number was so high. Yeah. And I also, that's one minor issue I have, is that the pictures of the males that they showed were 20 and 21. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to me, when I first saw the pictures, went, children. Yeah, like, yes. These are very, very young men. Um, yes. <laughs> that is also Compared what to what I would expect for, though, they were targeting 18 to 24. They were, yeah. So there was an over 24, but yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's also just the fact that we're getting old. I don't want to talk about that part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, dealing with, uh, dealing with people born in, you know, late 90s and early 2000s is uh, a hard one for me to deal with. Um, yes. <laughs> so. I, 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 when I have to, like, be like, do you guys remember Hurricane Katrina? No. Nope, you sure don't. Okay. <laughs> yep, <laughs> like, exactly. Uh, uh, yeah, so um, when I've had to update my, I mean, update my references in class for sure, that's bad news. But anyway, going on here, basically, so, yeah. Yeah, they took these photos. Uh, they had two different guys. Both They said in blue shirts and jeans. The one of them is in blue shirt and khakis, from what I can tell. Uh, yes, and he has a blue jean shirt on. <laughs> But whatever. <laughs> and one photo is more of a headshot on a white background. The other one is a sideways shot of them holding a cat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> this poor cat. <laughs> it looks very alarmed in one of the pictures. It does look very alarmed in one of the pictures. He looks real chill in the other one, which is funny because I wonder what, you know, if you're like, oh, that cat looks like he likes you versus that cat looks like he's very upset. So they showed these two pictures, and this is where I don't have the study design skills to understand some of the choices, but I'm sure that they're there. Yeah. Of they showed, you know, I would have showed a picture of one of the two young men without a cat, and then the other one with a cat. Oh, I got But they showed the picture of the same person with and without a cat, and then asked for a rating of each one. Right. They served as the control. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I thought I that was I don't... interesting. And I don't totally understand that, but I'm sure that there is great reasoning behind it. Yeah. And I think they talked about that being a limitation of the study too, but yeah. But yeah, so basically the, the short of this is uh, <laughs> if you were holding the cat in the picture, you were perceived as more neurotic and less dateable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's about it. And you were perceived by that very much more strongly by people who call self-identified as dog lovers. And I thought one of the conclusions is interesting. Of Well, maybe it's because dogs require, they're more social. They require more attention. They require more care. Whereas cats are sort of antisocial. You know, you feed them and yeah, they live in the same house with you, but they're not too happy about it. Uh, indicate less caring social potential. I thought that was a super interesting conclusion that I never would have drawn. So because if a guy has a dog and he's obviously taking care of that dog and they're happy in this picture, that means he'd be a good dad. I never would have drawn like that conclusion. I thought that was interesting versus versus a cat. I mean, and you know, you have both. We just have two dogs, but dogs are definitely higher maintenance than cats. Oh, I, I mean, well... Yeah. <laughs> I just spent an hour um, putting this ball of yarn that my cat unraveled into a big tangled mess back into a ball of yarn. But that didn't have anything to do with the cat, right? That was just... <laughs> right. The whole time that you were doing that, the cat was hiding somewhere. Oh, no. She was still trying to unravel it. It was real gross because the yarn got wet. It was real nasty from her chewing on it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was very interesting, and it's like, I'm—I mean that, I thought that was really interesting that part about the dogs and the cats taking care of them, because I totally get it. Like I feel like we got a dog before we had a kid to make sure we could take care of a dog together, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, we we so, had one, and then we got another. Then you got another, exactly. Um, I mean that's exactly what we did too. So, um, 
Yeah, that's really funny. And they said that they didn't talk about, but they would be interested in, and there have been other studies about that, about um, men holding cats are perceived as more feminine, but also um, perceived as being gay. And I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that was one of the things that someone else has already studied. And that they had some, you know, limitations of like what they could do with this study moving forward um, about that too. But yeah. Mm -hmm. So guys, don't put cats in your dating profile pictures. But you should put a dog. Right. It's the (laughs) difference between a swipe right and swipe left. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly, which was exactly one of the survey questions. <laughs> right, with an explanation <laughs> in case you didn't understand the context. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, this was hilarious. I thought this was right up your alley. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shannon, if folks have their own data from their own Mechanical Turk survey of cats versus dogs in <laughs> dating profile pictures... How can they get a hold of us? Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Um, come over to the Slack channel. We're on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you would like to support us on Patreon, you may do so. Patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.